Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for your beautiful word that tells us everything that we need to know about Jesus, everything that we need to know about us, and everything that we need to know about what you are doing because of us and for us. And as we delve more deeply into your word today, especially turning to our uh, obligation, what we owe you, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to be able to better understand what the scripture teaches so that we might live it out in a way that brings glory to your son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, back in the catechism, uh, we're going to be looking at several questions today. And again, you can find these in the back of your Trinity hymnal, you, uh, maybe on your phone uh, or your own you know, personal copy. But we're going to be looking at questions 39 through 42. 39 through 42, all in one. Now, I'm going to ask if somebody will just read the question, not the answer, the question uh, 39, because I want us just to see that we're, we're at a major um, division point in the catechism. So can somebody just read nice and loud number, uh, uh, question 39. Uh, what is the duty that God requires of man? Now, if you'll flip in your catechism to the very, very beginning, question number three, you might remember question number two talked about uh, that the Bible is what is given to us, it is in the word of God, that we find uh, the directions, the path forward on how we glorify God and how we enjoy him. So then question three was, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer breaks it down into two. The scriptures principally teach, one, what man is to believe concerning God, and two, what duty God requires of man. So what we've been doing since that question, starting with question number four, what is God? We've been answering the first part. What is man to believe concerning God? So everything we've read from question four through question 38 has been dealing with who God is, with who Jesus is, with what he is doing in terms of salvation, and so on. And that's what's been laid out in those questions. Now, let's go back to our own, question 39, and now we pick up the second part, what is the duty which God requires of man? And so now, from this point on, it's gonna deal with that question. Does that make sense? So you see how the catechism writers uh, broke this whole thing up, very, very logical. as you can expect from these Westminsterians. So with that, let's go ahead and read questions 39 through 42. I'm gonna ask if somebody will read each one individually. So read your question and your answer. Tanya, maybe I can pick on you since you already read the question to read it along with the answer and then if somebody will do 40, 41, 42. All right, thank you all for reading those questions. So you can see how this flows. It starts by saying, all right, what does God require of us? And the answer is that we obey his revealed will. Okay, well, what is it that he's revealed? Well, he's revealed to us the moral law. Okay, what is the moral law? Well, you find a summary of it in the Ten Commandments. Fantastic. Furthermore, the Ten Commandments can be summarized in the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. So it's 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 just a whole flow. We're going to go ahead and take all that today and kind of run with it. Um, Very, very important to put these two together because faith can never be separated from obedience. I mean, they go hand in hand. There can be no true faith without obedience. You might remember, in fact, um, somebody wants to look up James 2.22, James 2.22, and maybe another person look up Hebrews 11.6, and uh, we'll get a feel for that. And if you've got James 2.22, go ahead and read that. You can't have true faith if it doesn't issue forth in obedience. By the same token, let's hope I didn't mess up Hebrews 11.6, by the same token, you can't have obedience that doesn't flow from a real faith. Otherwise, it's not obedience. Anybody have Hebrews 11.6? Okay, so that beginning line, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And um, that's an interesting point because we see all sorts of folks, our neighbors next door, a perfect exam- example, without faith in Christ and believing what he himself has revealed they are attempting to please God. And quite frankly, they can't because they're not believing what he has revealed. And that's how that works. 
And that brings us then to, you know, um, uh, this next point, uh, or or I should say this, the second question, which is talking about the revealed will is what we're supposed to obey. And this is very important to recognize because today we tend to think of ourselves as, I say we, you know, I'm never talking about you guys in this room, it's everybody out there, right? But we tend to think that we can determine what is real, what is right, what is true, Uh, you know, what's true for me is what works and everything. But the reality is God is the creature, uh, the creator rather, we are the creature. We call that the creator-creature distinction and we keep coming back to it again and again. It's one of those fundamental issues that really makes uh, everything make sense in scripture. But it's one of those issues that we tend to forget again and again and again. And so much of our sin is because we erase the creator-creature distinction. And it's very simple. God is God and we're not. That's essentially the whole thing. We are the creature. Because we're the creature, there's all sorts of ontological, for those who like those words, ontological uh, consequences. Uh, he's infinite, we're finite. He's eternal, uh, we're not, and so on and so on. Um, but it also has to do with things like obedience. God has a right as the creator to set the table. He's the one who decides this is the way things are going to be. We have an obligation by our very existence to obey him, which is something that a lot of people today uh, balk at. And you know, they almost think that they're doing God a favor because they've decided to, to follow him. But you know, that's not the way it is. We, we owe him that very existence. So those are just some very important things to uh, uh, just kind of get here at the outset. So as we jump into this then, we see that what God first reveals to man uh, is his moral, uh, moral law. Now, let me just take a moment. We're talking about his revealed wills, the way the catechism puts that. There is a sense in which, you know, because God is infinite, we will never comprehend him fully. We can never know everything about God. Even if we spend all eternity in heaven, we will never be able to do so because he is infinite. However, there are things that we can know about God, but it always is what, uh, that, that which he has revealed. Otherwise, God is unknowable. And that may seem kind of strange because you will think, well, I can just grab a hold of him. But he is so wholly other than us, again, the creator-creature distinction, that unless he reveals himself, we would not have any fruition of who he is. Now, we already know he reveals himself in two ways. Uh, We've looked at that earlier. We have general revelation where he reveals himself in the creation, but Romans 1 makes that clear. He is revealing himself. He is choosing to use the creation to tell us something about himself. And then there is special revelation in his word when he speaks. So it's not just that you're observing creation, but when God speaks. And that's why when we read in John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the word The reason that's so important, and the word was with God and the word was God, is because it shows us that Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God. In Jesus, you get the fullness of God revealed to us, even in human form. Everything about him is what we need to know about God. So that's an important point for us to pick up on. So anyway, we would have no knowledge of of what God's will uh, would be for us unless he revealed it, which is why revelation is such a key thing. If you're into reading things like systematic theologies and so on, systematic theologies are written generally as references. They're not usually the way that you would introduce somebody to thinking in a Christian way, and that's why they usually begin with a whole chapter on Revelation. If I were going to somebody who was new in the, in the Christian faith, I don't begin there. But if I'm doing a systematic study, the reason most um, uh, systematic theology textbooks start with Revelation and how the Bible you know, comes into, into play and all that other stuff is because it's central. Everything that you say after that only makes sense because God has revealed himself. So you simply want to understand how that works. But we're not going to get into that here. The point is simply that it is God's revealed will that matters. Now, let me just ask you the question. If it's God's revealed will that matters, what does not matter in terms of our obedience and what, you know, what we should do? How we, how we should behave. If the only thing that matters in our behavior is what God has revealed, what should not matter? Sure, or things that we decide that we ought to do. And that's, this is, again, very, very important because there are all sorts of people who've come up with all sorts of ways 
in which they think that they're behaving properly or they even think that they're doing the things that God wants. But if it's not revealed, then you're really on thin ice. You've just basically made stuff up. And the scripture actually talks about that. It calls it, certainly, I was thinking of another word, but they're really kind of joined to the hip, aren't they? Idolatry. Whenever you take that which is not God, in this case, things that are revealed, you decide to do them. You're just pursuing idols. You're not pursuing God. In other words, there will not be anything outside God's revealed will that satisfies his requirement for our obedience. There's nothing outside of God's revealed will that will please him. That's why that Hebrews 11:6 passage is so impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that faith is not just simply, oh, I believe God exists. It means you believe everything that he has said. And he has said, this is how you please me. And when you decide to do this, you're not having faith. You're not believing in God's revealed will. You're believing in something else. So without faith in those things about that God has revealed, which, yes, he's revealed about himself, but he's also revealed um, uh, what he wants us to do, which is why that catechism question number three is so important. The first one says, uh, the second one talks about the scripture. The scripture is where we find these answers. Well, what does scripture talk about? Well, what God has revealed about himself, what God has revealed about our obedience. And so unless you have faith and believe all that, you cannot please God. So it's a very, very important uh, point right from the outset to get to. And when we grab a hold of that, it changes or should change our whole outlook in terms of how do we please God? How do we obey? What do we think of uh, other ideologies and religions and even attempts within Christianity to do things outside of the (coughs) revealed will of God? So any questions or comments about any of that? It's really kind of elementary, though, because, see, once you get that in place, you're like, oh, this is simple. I mean... When I was a kid, my dad uh, had bought um, a little refrigerator magnet. God said it. I believe it. Uh, how did it go? Something. Uh, yeah. That, settled, uh, that settles it. That's, uh, that's exactly what it was. Thank you. So I'm thinking back, you know, more than um, almost 50 years. Um, yeah. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. So, yeah. It really is as simple as that. But it has a theological grounding, a biblical grounding of why we have to think that way. But as all things with, with Scripture, you know, a seven-year-old child can figure it out, too. And, um, and if you just hang on to that, you know, when Jesus talks about having a childlike faith, he didn't mean that you were uh, um, meant to be, uh, you know, innocent, which is what a lot of people think that that, you know, when Jesus calls a child and says, unless you have a faith like this, and just like this little child, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God, it didn't mean that you were innocent, because none of us would be able to then enter. And children, by the way, are not innocent. Uh, and anybody who's a parent knows that. Um, but it means that if you have that simple faith of a child who doesn't question, who just automatically follows his parent. Notice he said a little child. We all know what happens when they start hitting the twin years and all that. But when they're, they're developing their independence. But if you just simply follow mom and dad, just believe what mom and dad says and just take at face value, you know, and those kind of things, that's what we're being asked to do here. It's really as simple as that. Okay, so let's move on. Um, and he tells us that the way that God has, uh, is that a question? Just a hand wave, okay. And he tells us, or the catechism question tells us that God has revealed himself in the moral law. I'm just going to keep writing words up here. <laughs> Not in any particular uh, place. The moral law. And it's there that we get um, that revealed will of how we're to obey. And it tells us that that's summarily comprehended. In other words, just summarized for us. In the Ten Commandments, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then those Ten Commandments themselves are summed up, and we're not going to read this, but it's in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, where it's summarized as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And that sums up the part of the Ten Commandments that has to do with how our, uh, uh, our attitude toward God, and then love your neighbor as yourself and deals with those Ten Commandments that deals with our attitude towards our neighbor, to our fellow human beings. So that summarizes all of them. So there it is. You know, we could just simply stop. But I do want to point out that there is an equivalence here. Uh, maybe I should have kept that. So uh, revealed will. If notice this is kind of backwards today. So let me reach around here. Revealed will. Um, maybe I can put it up here. RW, revealed will equals 
the Ten Commandments, which equals the two great commandments. I want to just put that up there to say these are not different things, right? In the same way that I could say five plus five equals ten, one plus one, one plus one plus one plus one, you know, all the way ten of those equals ten, seven plus three equals ten, you know, different combinations all equal ten. These are really covering the same thing. The forms are different, but they are exactly the same. So when we read that God revealed himself to Adam and gave him his revealed will, he in essence gave him the Ten Commandments. He in essence gave him the two great commandments. He may not have done it in the same form as he did with the Israelites on tablets of stone and what have you, but it is the same thing. And I say that so that we recognize that God does not have a shifting um, uh, requirement of it. In this era, he doesn't have this. He reveals this to this people and this to that people and whatever. It is always the same thing. Remember, God himself does not change. And so the moral law is a reflection of his character. Well, his character never changes. Therefore, the moral law never changes. And whether it's summarized in the Ten Commandments or in the two great commandments, or however else it may be summarized, it is always in, in its essence the same. Form may be different, the essence the same. Is that all right? Is that good? I mean, I think that kind of makes sense, and yet if you look, the reason I'm hitting on this, if you look at church history, this has been a problem for some people who try to distinguish between these different things and actually argue that they are different. Uh, but in essence, Adam was getting the same stuff that we get it is the same rule. So one of the places that you can see that, uh, maybe somebody can read Romans two fourteen through 15. Romans two fourteen through 15. This is where Paul has been dealing with the fact that he's gonna, he, where he wants to take us is to Romans 3, where he points out both Jew and Gentile are unrighteous. They lack righteousness. They need the righteousness which only Christ can provide. That's the big payoff pitch in chapter 3. He starts chapter one by pointing out how God has revealed himself and we've turned our back on him. And then the second half of chapter one, all of chapter two, is about how both Jew and Gentile both, in different ways, are unrighteous. But he deals with something very interesting in 14 through 15. Would somebody read that? All right, thank you so much. So here's a very interesting phenomena. The people who had not received the word of God uh, in, in, in a sort of written form. They didn't have you know, Moses coming to them and saying, here's the Ten Commandments. Uh, scripture tells us that that basic moral law is in fact built in. Remember, that's part of being made in the image of God. So it's already hardwired, okay? We are coded, if you will, with that law. And you can see it in a number of different ways. You know, you look at primitive or whatever, societies and so on, and you see that they, they inherently understand that taking people's stuff is wrong or, you know, uh, killing and so on and what have you. And uh, they may come up with all sorts of ways around that, but uh, that law is on our hearts. And even to the point where it tells us that we have a conscience because we're made in the image of God that can tell us, hey, you're doing things in a right way or no, you're doing things that are wrong. So, Right from the very beginning, that alone shows us that God has revealed that truth to all of us, even if it's not in the same form, it's there. So, okay, is that all good? Then let's go ahead and, uh, and move on. If, in fact, the moral law, the revealed will of God, the moral law is the, es- the same essence as the Ten Commandments, same essence as the two great commandments, why then... Does God, and, and, and it's written on our hearts, right, and so on. Then why does God have to give the Ten Commandments to the Israelites? Any, any takers? Okay, our hearts don't lead us in the right direction. What's been going on with our hearts? They definitely are. What's, what's, been, what's been happening? God created us, made us, you know, created us in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He's put the law in our hearts. What's been going on? being hardened because of sin, yeah. So uh, even though the law is on our hearts, we have tried very, very hard as sinful people to get rid of that inner sense of the moral law of God. Um, uh, Romans 1.18 
tells us that the wrath of God is even now being revealed against all unrighteousness. And why would God do that you know, to all people? It goes on to say that the truth about God has been revealed even in the creation. There's enough in the creation to know who God is. And yet, the key thing it says in, in, in Romans 1.20 is that God has, uh, God, that we suppress the truth. It's not ignorance. It's not ignorance. That's why God will judge all men and on judgment day, nobody gets to sit there and say, well, you didn't send me a missionary. God gave us enough that we can sit there and say, ah, he is God. But instead, as Paul lays out in Romans 1, he's basically he's a prosecutor. He's making his case. We had enough to acknowledge that God existed, but instead we left behind the, cre- the creator and we worshiped everything else, uh, the creature as well. And um, of course, secular people today would sit there and say, I don't do that. I don't you know, uh, worship uh, uh, the stars or, you know, I, I understand they're just animals and they're just uh, creatures, or they would never use the word creature. They're just, you know, uh, things and whatever. But he worships himself, you see. He's elevated himself to that position of authority. So he is also a creature, also rejects the creator. Russ, you had a hand up. He gives us what we need to know, but we decided to go in our own way. And yes, a multitude of different ways other than that childlike straight way of just doing what he asks us to do, that kind of thing. So we have been suppressing that truth. And, and, and um, uh, Paul, like I said, he's, he's a prosecutor in Romans 1, uh, in, chapter, in, in a verse 28. It tells us they, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, that's an, actually in 125. Uh, in 121, it says that our foolish hearts, or their foolish hearts, were darkened, right? Uh, 128, that, that we did not retain uh, the knowledge of God. Um, if we jump to John 3:19, we read that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were continually evil. So this is who we are, and so we try to push and try to get rid of um, um, that inner sense of God's moral law. Um, and yet, it's still there. It's still there. We can't completely erase it. But we've been successful enough that God then comes, and, 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 and it's still there so that, as, as, uh, as I mentioned in Romans 1.20, uh, it tells us that we're without excuse. There's no excuse, because we have actively suppressed the truth. It's not just that we didn't know about it, we rejected it. But because of that, then God has to uh, I shouldn't say has to, but God has graciously gone out of his way to then reveal to us in written form the moral law so that we can have it right in front of us. Paul says in Romans 3.20 that it is by the law that we, uh, that we receive the knowledge of sin. So it's there to show us immediately our need. In Galatians 3.24, he says that the law is our schoolmaster, right? It brings us unto Christ so that we might be justified by faith. So the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, two great commandments, again, the, the law in written form, is, is not God being persnickety or, oh, I'm gonna take away your fun. It is a gracious thing because ultimately it is to be used by God to bring us to faith. And that's where we begin to see something interesting. Uh, any of you guys who've gone through um, officer training will know this very important little point. Let's see if I can, can I go ahead and erase the equivalency thing? And that is that the moral law actually serves three purposes. Again, the moral law is 10 commandments, two great commandments, you know, and all those variations thereof. But the law actually serves three purposes, one which we just finished describing. And I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to pick on our uh, officer candidates. Uh, you guys remember? Or if you're not an officer candidate, but you've been reading and studying this stuff, uh, by all means, chime in. But what's the first use of the moral law? The first thing it does for us? What, what, did I hear something? Convict, yeah. And that's what we just finished saying uh, from Romans 3, right? We, we receive our knowledge of sin through the law. It convicts us. Uh, it acts like a mirror that's held up before us, and we see ourselves as we truly are. Paul says, without the law, I would have had no sin. He wouldn't have known. You know, if you don't tell somebody that's wrong and they're doing it, they won't know it's wrong, right? So the law reveals to us, and again, moral law doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments, even the one written on our hearts. 
If God had not written it on our hearts and we did something that he considers wrong, we would not have known it. But he put it on our hearts, he puts it in word so that we're left without excuse. And the first thing in the moral law is it acts as a mirror, okay? The second one, which we're really not talking about here in this class at all, and I wouldn't expect most people to be thinking of, um, is the civil use of the law. So if um, some of you just want to write it down, I'm going to put it up there just for complete, completeness. I want to focus on one and three. The civil use of the moral law is a little confusing. It just simply means that when we write laws today for our society, for our civil society, then we look to the Ten Commandments as the basis. So for example, if you write a law that says, your car crashes into my car, and I was at fault because I threw myself in front of you, you know, uh, and you know, I ran a stop sign or something, so you hit me, then I'm at fault and I owe you restitution, right? I need to, to pay you your damages. Uh, well, that's an application of the Eighth Commandment, right? Because if I don't do that, I'm stealing from you. See, that kind of thing. So the civil use of the moral law is that it gives us guidance for how we write laws for civil society. But the third one is really interesting. We're going to come to that in just a moment. But before we, uh, we get there, uh, let's see, have I covered everything I wanted to on the first one? Yes, let's go ahead and jump into, because of our time, yep, let's just jump into number three. So the third use of the law, any takers? Any of our candidate types? Convicting use, civil use? Okay, I'm gonna give you a hint. Um, We don't do this in our church, it makes it harder. Have you ever been to a church where they do a confession of sin, like we do, where we confess our sin, but they read the Ten Commandments? Where do they typically read the Ten Commandments in relation to that confession of sin? Don't be ashamed. Before, okay. A lot of churches, like if you go to Lutheran churches especially, they will read the Ten Commandments before. Now, which use is that? They read the Ten Commandments so that you're convicted of your sin and that moves you to confession of sin. Right? That's, and I say Lutherans do that because Luther strongly felt that this was the primary use of the law, which is to convict. But the rest of Protestantism followed John Calvin's lead and sees the third use as the primary for the Christian. And you can call that acting as a norm. It is normative. What do I mean by normative? It sets the standard. It sets the way we should behave. In other words, this is not just to convict us of our sin, but once we have been saved, once we have been forgiven, now we want to please God. Remember, that was the whole thing, is how do we please God? If I were to ask you, who knows inherently how to please God apart from the law, nobody should raise their hands. We need God to tell us, this is how you please me. So the law then is not there to convict us primarily. It does that as we become believers. It does that even as believers, but it's not the primary use. The primary use is even as a forgiven sinner who wants to please God, it still serves a purpose and it shows me how I can obey and please him. Does that make sense? So it sets the standard, it sets the norm. Think of it as a yardstick by which you can measure your own efforts and say, ah, this is what pleases God because it's his revealed will. So not hitting my little brother, ah, that pleases God, I won't do it. In other words, it's not just, oh, I hit my little brother and I see the law, oh, that was wrong. But even as you seek to actively want to obey him, it serves as a guide. Maybe that's the, that's the word we should look for, it's a guide. And so, Rob. No, not at all. Yeah, this is, um, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that because, well, this is convicting us of our sin. I don't think it has to do with this because normative is how do we behave even like, okay, God doesn't want me to make idols. Okay, okay, I got that. So it goes in all directions. 
the civil. Uh, sure, I mean, you know, because civil laws are basically regulating our behavior amongst ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not... Right, I just think they have different emphases. Because again, this is like a use, like you can take a tool and use it in different ways. So I, well, I see that, you know, what you're saying, that the civil tends to have a more horizontal effect. I would still argue that this is, well, it's trying to please God. It pleases God when I don't hit my little brother. It pleases God when I don't steal, when I don't commit adultery, and so that very much is also a horizontal kind of thing. It also pleases God when I keep the Lord's day, when I don't take his name in vain. That's very vertical, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. So I see where you're going with that. Right. No, no doubt. In that regard, yes. I would say yes. But what we're really talking about is why do you use the law? Why do you use the law? So, yeah, um, I, I'm not sure that would be the best thing of thinking of that, that way. Just, but the, the key thing is it's not like we don't use it as convicting. We do. Uh, it still convicts, that kind of thing. But the primary use for a believer is after. The Ten Commandments comes first in Exodus chapter 20. Does anybody remember the preamble, the preface to the Ten Commandments? Just a line or two. Two verses. Yeah. I am the Lord your God who what? Who saved you, brought you out. In other words, is it obey this law and then I will redeem you? I've redeemed you. I've gotten you out of Egypt. I've brought you to Sinai. This is how a redeemed people behave. This is how redeemed people show God their love. This is how redeemed people please God. Very, very important uh, um, difference in that approach. So that's what we're seeing here. It's, uh, it's absolutely clear. The moral law's primary use for believers there. And interestingly, John Calvin, in his worship service, would do the confession of sin like we do, and then they would sing the Ten Commandments. What? Why would they do that afterwards? Because, okay, now that we're believers, they would do a declaration of forgiveness, just like we do, you're, you're forgiven, and then they would sing that as the song showing, now here's how we behave. Still in the hymnal. Oh, yeah, the, the exact tune and everything is in the hymnal. I, I, I would love to be able to work that in uh, and, and do that on a regular basis. Maybe one of these days we'll sit down and we'll figure out uh, how we do that. More than likely would mean giving up another song elsewhere and sharing, sharing a seat here. She listening. She might have my neck. Okay, but anyway, um, but yeah, it's a uh, what? Seven twenty-four. Number seven twenty-four, I think, in the hymnal. Oh, I figured you were looking at it. Okay, sorry. We used to sing it up in Portland. Okay. It's. Oh, it's a great song. It's got that this uh, this. Uh, Early Renaissance kind of, uh, uh, do they? Let's see, we're just, we're behind the power curve. We're going to have to catch up and, and do that. All right, just a few more things then that, uh, that we want to point out. And that is, once we understand all this about the revealed will, the moral law, we can begin to see that the law, the Ten Commandments, has universal authority. There are some people who imagine that since the Ten, Commandment was, Ten Commandments were given to Israel, uh, then they're only for the people of Israel. Um, there are those who mistakenly believe that they were given to Israel so that if, if they keep the law, then they would be saved. We've already addressed that issue, but all those are, are things that are basically uh, misunderstandings. Uh, what we see here very clearly is that it's given to all people, whether it be on your hearts and ultimately laid down in black and white in the Ten Commandments or uh, the two great commandments that summarize all that. But the goal of it ultimately is for all human beings to behave in this way. It's the way that human beings as creatures are to respond to their creator. Okay. Um, let's see, do we have time? Yeah, we'll have just enough time to say this. The question has been asked in the past, if then... 
the law is, uh, you know, our, um, uh, something that comes at the, at the very, very beginning. The Ten Commandments, uh, in essence, is given to Adam. And in essence, is already, um, is already there in every human being. Why then does the catechism talk about the law after discussing the person and work of Christ? Because in history, the way things developed in redemptive history, we get the law first, later we get Jesus. And yet the catechism begins by discussing God, by discussing Jesus, discussing what he's done for us and salvation, and then only then does it discuss the law, which is what we're getting into now and we're gonna be looking at in the weeks ahead. And the reason for that is very simple. First of all, there's always that temptation to believe if you put the law first, even in a discussion like the catechism, that you think this is what I have to do in order for Christ to, to obey. And there's a whole segment of the church that's centered in this little town in Italy that is centered around that whole way of thinking. Uh, you know, in the Roman church, everything is basically um, your obedience, your obedience. Even Jesus is seen as absolutely essential, but Jesus is the one, he's, he's like a battery, right? And you, you, you're like your phone, it's draining, and so you need to have Jesus power you up. He's a supercharged battery pack. You've seen those little packs you can now attach to your, uh, to your phones, and they just give it all that charge. And so that's what Jesus does. If you look at the Roman system, you can just grab uh, today's uh, catechism of the Roman church, and it literally describes how Jesus empowers you, but you have to fulfill that law. And as you fulfill that law, you gain merit that will then eventually be uh, what gets you in. If you don't get enough and all that other stuff, you know, by the time you die, you go to purgatory and so on. But what is purgatory? It's, it's sloughing off all your demerit so you can regain merit. But, uh, so Jesus plays a central role. Uh, basically, uh, in the Roman church, they admit that you don't have enough juice to get you from beginning to end. There's a few exceptions, and those are the people they call saints. But that whole system is, uh, is, is built like that. And so that's a tendency that human beings have. So I think, I don't have any facts saying this, but I've read a number of people saying this over the years, that more than likely the Westminster, uh, the writers of the Westminster uh, Catechisms and Confession flip this for one reason, at the very least, is to not have anybody fall into the trap, even a casual reading, which is, oh, the law comes first, that's what you have to obey. But the real reason I think they do it is because of this. They discuss everything that Christ has done for us, and then they say, now here's how you respond. So I do believe it's because this is so key uh, in Reformed theology that that's the main reason that they put it where they do. It's put there because they've told you, here's what Christ has done for you, here's how you obey in gratitude, right? After all, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? John 14, 15, I believe that is. And uh, John fourteen twenty one, he restates it in another way. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is. I love the ESV's kind of old language. He it is that loves me. Actually, I don't love it. I wish they would have changed that and done it more naturally. But he that has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one, essentially, who loves me. And yeah, John fourteen fifteen. Uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's a very important um, uh, point to pick up on that even the catechism structures it here because it shows Christ has saved you, here's the loving response. So, any questions about any of this? We're pretty much wrapped up. I'm gonna say one more thing, but it's a little different than everything else. Questions, comments, interactions? Nope, all good? Okay, there's one last thing that I wanna discuss because sometimes it comes up and it can be a little confusing. And again, those of you who've been through uh, officer training, you know this very, very well. But when we talk about the moral law, we're talking about here, it's three uses. And I want you to see the very important word here. Three uses of the moral law. Three different ways in which it can get used. But there, are, there is another way to talk about the law. I'm going to go ahead and erase this for now. In Scripture. And that is the three types of law. What? Three types, you didn't say anything. You've been talking about the moral law. And I'm putting this up there just so that we can um, 
not get confused. So there are three types of law. Anybody want to take a stab at what those are in the Bible? Ceremonial, Ceremonial. I'm going to put that on the bottom. <laughs> what else did I hear? Civil. Somebody's ready to take their exam. What's the first one? Moral. Okay. This is, um, when we actually start teaching this, we, we start here. There are three types of law in, this, in the scripture. There is the moral law, which we've been talking all about. What does God want us to do as our response to what, you know, it's, it's, it's what he expects of us. The civil law is not to be confused with the civil use of the moral law. See, these three uses belong only to here. There's the moral law, which can be used in three different ways. You guys got that? Three types of law. Moral can be used in three different ways. The civil law is that law in the Old Testament when the church was a civil society. In other words, the church was a nation, and that was the nation of Israel. Yeah, and so there are laws in there. If your ox gores my ox, you owe me an ox, right? By the way, have you noticed it's very similar to this? Very similar, because every one of those um, uh, laws in the Old Testament for the civil nation of Israel is an application of the Ten Commandments. If your ox gores my ox, you owe me restitution, is again an application of which commandment? The Eighth Commandment. See, just like with the, if your car hits my car, and that kind of thing. The thing is that that actual law Notice that this is the civil use of the moral law where you use it to write other laws like U.S. code and that kind of thing. This is the actual law of Israel. And that law no longer applies today. That's an important point to say because some people in the last 30, 40 years have begun to forget that. So again, every one of those laws flows from the Ten Commandments. So the confession of faith makes very clear that the moral law from which these Old Testament Israel laws flow from, those of course still apply, the moral law still applies. But those particular applications were good for the nation of Israel when they were a nation and so on. They do not, they're not incumbent upon the church. So, fifth commandment, honor your mother and father so that your days may be long in the land that I'm gonna give you, Right? Does that still apply today? Yes, because that's a moral law. It's in the Ten Commandments. When your child talks back to you, stone him. <laughs> and Tanya's like, <laughs> I'm not even going to get into, you know, what? That's so, okay, we'll talk about that some other time. But that is the civil law for Old Testament Israel. And it is not appropriate for Christians to say we bring back that law. Do not commit adultery, which we're going to be looking at these laws and you're going to say, how does not commit adultery have to do with what you're about to say? Do not commit adultery really is about all sexual immorality. Uh, Again, the form of the law versus uh, the actual substance and the substance can be. So uh, homosexuality and those kind of things. Uh, all fit under the seventh commandment and, and are, um, you know, we're called to not engage in those. So it tells us to, to kill homosexuals. Do we then as Christians seek to kill homosexuals? Because it says that in Leviticus. No, that civil law has been abrogated, that it's been set aside because the church is no longer the nation state of Israel. If you were sitting in the, in the Sunday school class about dispensationalism and all that, Israel is the Old Testament church. There is no replacement theology. That was one of the big questions, you know, one of the big points that we were talking about last week. Israel is the Old Testament church. The church is New Testament Israel. Right, just a continuation, except that it is now supranational, not supranational, it's not above nations. Supranational encompasses all different nations, as the word goes out. So we are no longer one civil society. We have Christians in the United States, we have Christians in Angola, we have Christians in every, you know, in just about everywhere in the world. So, 
Civil law has been abrogated. The ceremonial law is the laws that have to do with the sacrifices, the temple, the vestments that the priests wore, and all that other stuff. What did the ceremonial law highlight? What was its focus? What was it pointing to? Christ. In particular, his redemptive work, yes, his sacrifices. So you have the whole burnt offering, which signified that all of you had to be given to God. The sacrifice always stands in your place, right? So you burn the whole offering. My whole self should be dedicated to God, not just part-time. Jesus gave himself wholly to God and even was consumed wholly for us, right? You get the fellowship offering where you sit down with the priest who represents God and you have a meal with him and there's fellowship and the enmity between God and man has been removed. Jesus dies for us so that we can now sit down, Lord's Supper, have fellowship with God, man and God together to table the enmities and remove. So all the, you know, those, those laws are, uh, are pointing to the work of Christ and how he's gonna save us sacrificially. Because Jesus has already come and done that, we don't need the pointers anymore. We have the reality. So the ceremonial law is also abrogated. And the only thing that remains and the only thing that has abiding force today is the moral law. A moral law which has three uses. So don't confuse the three types of law with the three uses of the moral law. So I just wanted to mention that because after we said all this, you may sit there and say, where does the ceremonial law fit into this? Now you know how it fits in. So, all right, our time is up. What have I missed here? Oh, yes, one last thing to say, uh, just because it's, it's written really nicely here, because um, he said it so well, G.I. Williamson, about the law. I did have it right here. Now I can't find it. Uh, well, basically, the whole thing that he was saying is that um, the law, that we're not saved by the law, but we are saved to the law, is how somewhere he was putting it. Yeah, I can't find it. It was a nice little saying, but just, just a thing to recognize there that we are being saved not by the law. And we've insisted on that so much, especially since the Reformation, against what was happening in the medieval church and unfortunately still happens in the Roman church today. We're not saved by the law, but in the process of saying that so strongly, many Christians then see no use for the law anymore. And this shows us that what Christ has saved us is to the law so that we can obey it. This is what he wanted us to do originally. Remember the revealed will part, right, from Adam? That was what he expected of Adam from the beginning. And it's what he's restoring us to. He's, re- he's giving us through the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating us, sanctifying us, and ultimately on, uh, on our last day when we're restored in our full bodies and we're fully glorified, uh, the idea is that we will be able to obey him perfectly. So we are being saved to the law. So it still is our friend now. It's no longer our enemy that convicts us and shows us uh, our sin. It is our friend, and it shows us uh, how we can do what we should want to do, which is to obey and please God. So, okay, all good? Uh, Yes, the little tassels and all. Very, very, very good question. Very good question, Um, because... um, you have this, this, this transition period, right? Jesus comes. He comes primarily to Jewish people. Uh, the first uh, uh, disciples are almost all exclusively Jewish. You know, sometimes we forget that and all that. And many of them continue going to the temple, continue doing the sacrifices. But it's a transition period. And it becomes very clear in Paul's writing that he is preparing the church not to be a Gentile church, but to be a church that is transformed in the way, the the shifting from the old to the new covenant, right? Uh, You can see it in the battles where the church was saying, well, we need to circumcise them, and they have a whole first general assembly, and the answer is, yeah, no, we don't. So that begins, but God does things gently. He doesn't just, you know, that would have been too, too harsh. But Jesus tells us, in Matthew 24 and 25, that there's, the temple is gonna be destroyed. And what he is saying is, in that is, the end of these things is coming. No more will we have to do those things. Our friends who, who are of Jewish background who end up doing those things really need to read Galatians. And they really need to read the book of Hebrews uh, that deals very clearly with the fact that those things are now set aside. They can claim them to be cultural, but there comes a point where you recognize they have ceased in their utility. 
because if they kept going and if there were, you know, the whole Palestinian Hamas, Hezbollah, all that stuff, they had free reign, they probably would go and rebuild the temple. And we gotta tell them, don't do that. And here's the reasons why we don't do that. And a lot of Gentile Christians, remember we're the ones who are engrafted and so on. A lot of Gentile Christians in the last 20 or so years, well, since the 70s really, so much longer than that, but it's really been picking up steam. We've been buying into, oh, we should celebrate Passover. There's no harm in that. And we should do this and we should do that. And you know, that's what real Christians did back then. And again, we're not looking at the flow of redemptive history and how it works and that Jesus himself is closing the door. Not all at once, he didn't slam it shut, but he moved it fairly quickly in the grand scheme of things from his death somewhere around 27, you know, AD 27 till about 70 AD. So I would say, no, don't do that. I've been invited to Passover seders and it's like, no thank you, because I don't want to also have to wear you know, uh, uh, Old Testament clothes and I don't want to kill my kids and all that other stuff, you know. So I mean, if you're gonna do one, you better might as well go all full bore, which again is kind of spitting in the face of what, now they don't do it that way. I realize that their motivations are different. I go back to what John Calvin uh, constantly called us to, using Deuteronomy 12 when it comes to worship, which is no matter how sincere we are, that doesn't make it right. All right, let's leave it there because we really are out of time, 10, 15. Uh, if you have other questions, as always, just you know, uh, keep them for next week or grab me during the week. A lot of stuff in this, but all good stuff. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have, in your compassion and in your condescension to us, revealed yourself in a way that we can understand. You've put the law on our hearts, creating us in your image, and you've even gone out of the way after we uh, uh, have done everything we can to suppress that truth. Uh, you've gone out of your way to give us the law in written form, whether it be on tablets of stone meant to show that it was, um, that it was forever uh, or in our uh, paper Bibles. But ultimately, Father, you've shown us in the sending of your Son, who is the ultimate revelation of who you are, of what you're doing for us, and what you expect of us. And Jesus does say, these are my commandments. So, Father, we're th- thankful that you've done all that out of your mercy. Thank you that your law shows us our need that had served as a schoolmaster when we were underage, but now that we are adult Christians, as it were, according to the Bible, according to uh, the New Testament, uh, we pray, Lord, that we might now use the law as a standard and as a guide, that we might be able to live lives that please you. We recognize that we fail, but we thank you for your grace and that you forgive us again and again and again. Help us to understand these things. Help us to navigate uh, tricky things like what, Chelsea was just bringing up um, that uh, come up in all sorts of ways of how do we live out the law and, uh, and help us to be charitable to one another in this regard as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.